Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. In conversation with academics and activists, researchers and artists, we platform discussions between knowledge sharers, creatives and intellectuals, and change makers. Our mission is clear political education for the masses, grounded in history, theory, and practice. Enjoy the episode and please do share with your networks. Hello everyone, Um, I'm Lola, I'm a black feminist writer and researcher from London and I'm really, really excited to be joined by um, Michael and Alex who are here to talk about their book Fractured, Race, Class, Gender and the Hatred of Identity Politics. Um, First I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and then we'll have a bit of a chat. Um, Michael, would you like to go first? Sure. Um Thanks so much for hosting us, Lola, and it's a real honour to be on Surviving Society. Um, my name's Michael Richmond, and this is my first book, and we're, we wrote it together with my comrade Alex Charney here, and that's all I need to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Lola, for hosting this. been really excited to do it, and Surviving Society, big fans. So, uh, yeah, I'm Alex Charnley, and I co-wrote this book with Michael. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it, but we began writing for the Occupied Times and Base Collectives. The book kind of developed from there, which I'm sure we'll get to. A good way, perhaps, to, like, introduce um, everybody to the text and a good way to think through it is how you framed your critique of reductive engagements with identity on the left and right. I think this book is a real feat for many reasons, um, but I think because it really takes seriously, like, um, the propositions that identity gives us as people on the left. Um, and also it makes this clear distinction between identity meaning something to, uh, different to identity politics. And it really pushes against the way I think that the um, identity politics has become a way for the right to, to demonstrate their um, disdain for forms of resistance to organized um, state violence. So my first question for you guys is, what do you understand by the terms identity and identity politics? And how have critiques of those two um, terms or formulations, how have they been weaponized by forces on the left and right? And what are the convergences uh, of that weaponization? That's a great question. To start with, we'll we'll take identity politics as a as a kind of term, a phrase. We are interested in analysing the discourses around it um, and the kind of turns in those discourses um, and how available pejorative discourses of identity politics are to people from wildly different kind of um, political traditions or kind of subject positions. The, it, we're, we're kind of trying to trace in the book how this kind of sort of negative association of identity politics as something that, you know, divides various kinds of, of settled collectivity. So it divides, divides the class or it divides the nation. It's it splits movements, um, so we we are interested in in how that kind of comes about. So we tr- we try to trace that from the coining of the term. There's this bit in in policing the crisis where Stuart Hall and others where they say around the term mugging, they say something like, um, you know, if we could just get rid of the word, you know, that would be a great thing. But that's not really how 
how language works and it's not how politics works. Mm. The term identity politics is playing an important role in in various different types of like various different spaces in online, especially in online spaces, but within like radical politics, we've seen it turn up in kind of in you know anarchist movements with like the kind of the fallout from the 2017 anarchist book fair there was a lot of sort of decrying of of kind of identity politics getting in the way of a kind of this kind of um harking back to a, a real anarchist politics or a real kind of <coughs> class politics so we connect we we connect it again and again to this sense that there's this kind of there is this nostalgic kind of prior collectivity or form of organization which existed and then it was ruined by this by this catch-all term being being identity politics yeah i think that's it we we try and use that introduction really rather than kind of get into the heat of the debate but try and historicize the different historical turns of the debate and certainly it seems that wherever it's coming from there's a sense in which a more authentic position or kind of a more authentic kind of brokering of division it's being disrupted by identity politics itself. And then, so we, when we get into that, we look, you know, around socialist thinkers, kind of US discourses like Adolf Reed, but also Eric Hobsbawm, and kind of the way that this schema of identity politics has been theorized, So which is kind of a bit different than spotting something, a kind of a manipulative use of identity and saying identity politics, which we see all the time as a kind of flack. Mm. It actually has a role as a theoretical role, which is that, uh, there was a working class movement and there was kind of organized in, in, uh, enlightenment kind of universals were operative in these movements. And then the death of these movements when we bro- we kind of broke into a new period. And so what we really want to show in that is that through presenting these debates, that actually a periodization around neoliberalism develops through the critique of identity politics. Identity politics as a schema, as a kind of potential pathology of neoliberal kind of uh, individualism, and then it's a loose bracket, I suppose, to kind of selectively um, selectively divide uh, liberation movements or any movements that kind of have the stigmata of like post-state liberation movements and um, the honest broker, which is often socialism. You know, that socialism isn't identity politics, that, that labor, you know, that kind of laborist institutions or the way that working class was nationalized around these institutions, that has nothing to do with identity politics and for us to go back to your question around identity you know really taking identity seriously is looking actually at the kind of convalescence of uh, conflicts and how they operate through working class histories and that identity is always a problem and it's been uh, certainly a problem for movements and labor movements and kind of uh, you know a kind of even the very idea of labor as a nationalized entity is kind of been produced struggles from below and kind of formulations from above around what workers actually enter into that boundary um often through exclusion so we kind of wanted to really present that the best way we could to argue that the following chapters would be more historically immersive that they wouldn't be discourse analysis because we wanted to get into certain what we call moments of revolutionary time in history where we actually can look at how solidarities form our movements try to compose themselves and how they kind of break up mm. and identity allows us a way of understanding the relationality really of the crisis of movements and their relations to the state and colonialism in the kind of the lingerie so i think that was kind of the, the basis of that introduction is to get into the jumble of mm-hmm. the discourse to kind of pull out 
um, kind of an historical vantage point or it's kind of a necessary vantage point. Yeah, it started off as an essay about like left anti-identity politics discourses, the kind of like anti-wokeness stuff that was really kind of um, becoming, like getting traction in the kind of the middle of the 2010s around the kind of rise of Corbyn and Sanders and some of the the kind of online kind of um, socialist websites and podcasts that, that were finding like easy ways to try to kind of cohere kind of electoral projects to try and say like what's important is electoral composition not not class composition not like not like deeper struggles that that are kind of that are ongoing and that that kind of wax and wane but like are kind of part of these kind of um deeper histories of how um how exploitation and oppression are, are ordered in in particular societies um so th- it was going to be that kind of essay and then basically um a publisher approached me and asked if i wanted to write uh, a book about anti-semitism um, as an individual because i'd written some stuff about anti-semitism um, and i really didn't want to write <laughs> that book i kind of like basically like wanted to you know not have a breakdown <laughs> from from getting involved in that stuff so um but we were writing this essay and so we said like maybe we could kind of expand this essay into a into a into a longer form and and then um and then they they seemed keen on that and and we started getting to work on that for that publisher um and then later down the line that publisher wasn't kind of withdrew their interest but um luckily we well i think i dm'd nader tirani <laughs> shout uh, out to nader nader <laughs> um who is also your editor yes, as well absolutely and a gem she's amazing <laughs> and she helped us because basically like by that point we had already started writing these extremely like long historical chapters and and so the the task then was to to basically cut word count obviously but also to kind of restructure so that we we were kind of making those arguments work so that we could make kind of interventions into current movements that we're part of and that we're in solidarity with um but to say that these things like to to show how these things aren't necessarily new that they're Mm. not necessarily novel that they're not they can't be put down to like internet crazes or neoliberalism that these are problems of of kind of class composition these are problems of people being um you know racialized and gendered in different ways over long history so that that was the kind of that was the task that that then we we tried to take on i think also you name like two i think important things which is like the reactionary turn in parts of the left that were focused on electoral politics that started to weaponize um, identity politics but also how I guess like Marxist historiographies maybe sometimes reaffirm this idea of harmony and unity and I think in your historical account you show how division disunity how identities being historically um, constituted have always posed an interruption to an otherwise like the idea of an otherwise harmonious working class and I want to come back to something you said Alex in terms of like Rodiger's formulation of revolutionary time um, as something um, that in the book you say he 
um, thinks of as or defines in the post-slavery period as a phenomenon in which the pace of change and possibility of freedom accelerated the very experience of time. And I think um, so often we don't talk about how um, there is a real anxiety about not um, uh, having unity or not having a clear kind of um, position for what where the working class stands in relation to I guess the ruling class so can you expand a little on how um, Rodiger's formulation of um, revolutionary time how that framework relates to the arguments that you make in um, the book um, and also how uncertainty disunity division are constitutive actually of a radical politics rather than impositioned ushered in by neoliberalism as you've said yeah, I mean, I'll briefly talk on that and then pass over to you, Mike, but I f- partly because Mike introduced me to Rodiger and this book in particular, and it became really formative to how we understood, how we developed an idea of historical methodology, actually, because I think what Rodiger's doing in that book, which is really brilliant, is to get into the grips of how solidarity is formed, you know, that they formed in a period of revolutionary time um, and you know, where that was freshest was where it was very open, where essentially, you know, how, how he understands or conceives of that time is that some of these boundaries of identity that were there, racialization, obviously, in particular, but also gender, um, with quite stratified groups, you know, like white middle class women coming into alliance with black men, with black women, then kind of slightly kind of ostracized, well, not slightly, but ostracized from these kind of potential alliances but still with all those divisions in play really inc- incredibly strict kind of formalized divisions in play there was a potential opening where um they didn't have the same kind of calcified intent you know the kind of possibilities opened up and i just thought that was a really we both came to us as really just like an historically proved thesis really that he was doing that and it was something to explore in all our settings you know like our setting in the contemporary era and these historical kind of scenes and contexts that we looked at. So that was it really, wasn't it? I think that was kind of one of our influences, you know, to kind of look at this and think, actually, these these histories aren't past and kind of ascertained. There's openings within them that we don't understand and we don't understand unless we really get to grips with them. So I think Rodiger says in the book that he that he doesn't coin the term, that no. he gets it yeah. from like um, historiography of like French Revolution. Yeah. Um, but so it's this thing that's kind of like, and to be honest, like I, I think when I was reading your book experiments, which actually, I, which I read after our book, so it was, I wasn't, wasn't nicking it and calling it something else. But I do feel like that they're that those that they're in conversation. They're both they're talking about time and history and revolution and some of these questions of why these uprisings happen at certain times and what that feels like when they happen mm. and you know and obviously within within his book he's talking about about the US civil war and get very engaged with um with Du Bois work um and we were very engaged with Sadia Hartman's work as well around that period because she's so kind of like deft and sensitive in trying to kind of trace through those kind of you know changing relations between like um the kind of forms of labor of black people in america in the in those different spaces and in that time and 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 what this kind of thing of uh that's called emancipation 
which you know Rodiger and and more to the point Du Bois kind of described to us through you know Du Bois's idea of the general strike of the slaves, which places the agency in enslaved people um, rising up, um, escaping from the South to. To, you know, from plantations to to union lines, um, or the kind of changed kind of power dynamics that that be, that kind of um, that arise from this period of tumult, for, of this period of war, that kind of the the opportunism that that is a, that becomes available to people who are able to to kind of craft new forms of struggle. Um, so these these are some of the kind of specificities of 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 what we get from Rodiger and what we try to kind of show in in chapter one but but then you know the, in terms of um like trying to expand the concept of revolutionary time we we found ourselves coming back to it again and again at different at different kind of points in our histories around you know around the year of 1919 and around around the, the kind of period of like black power and and women's liberation in the late 60s and early 70s and how these periods envelop people's lives and 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 to to an extent i think we were engaging with it because we'd felt that in our own lives as well because we met during a social movement that was rising up in 2011 that was kind of manifesting in different ways but was kind of felt like a wave struck our lives and changed our conceptions and introduced us to to different ideas and different people and and it set us in train to do the kinds of work that that went into the book so it it meant a lot to us and i think hopefully helped to kind of frame some of some of the explorations that we were that we went on to kind of do in, in the different kind of historical scenes that we set out. I think also what you're naming is um, a real, and I, I work a lot, a lot on temporality. And so I'm interested in this, mm. um, especially like historically is this attachment to linearity in terms of how mm. revolution unfolds. Um, and in the book, you say, you have this quote from uh, Sivanandan, racism is not its own justification. It is necessary only for the purpose of exploitation. You discriminate in order to exploit, um, or which is the same thing, you exploit by discriminating. When I was reading th- that kind of section, reading the book generally, I was also thinking about Cedric Robinson um, naming like racial capitalism as a system that's concerned with the active celebration of the degradation of life via kind of acute violations of human destiny. And I think both of these conceptualizations trouble this idea that like racial and gendered antagonism are simply like residual prejudices that are mm. left over from you know movements or whatever um rather than like fundamental components of like domination or fundamentally constitutive of what the working class is and so i wondered um if you could speak to the the danger of this idea on the left which i think is quite pervasive but also how it reinscribes that linearity to political struggle and how that has to come under our investigation because i'm sorry this is such a long question but i'm thinking also of the kombahi river collective statement in it they say I'm going to butcher it, but they say something akin to like, we don't trust that after the fall of capitalism, all of these other markers of domination that shape our lives, racism, sexism, other forms of power will simply disintegrate or disappear. Um, So yeah, how do we begin to, I guess, question those stages of revolution or that linearity that would make identity, um, that formulates identity as um, 
uh, something that obscures rather than something that, as you said, Alex, allows for solidarities to emerge. I definitely think that um, the tendency, if we go back to historiography and kind of temporality, the tendency in, say, Marxist historiography is not to really focus around identity or these kind of issues we're talking about because they're messy and they're almost not theorizable. It's a sense in which they kind of live outside the paradigms of like historical wins or kind of that history has this causal expression mm. that comes from the economy and kind of move things forward. So on one level, there's a real danger in that because if you kind of sit with that as your assumption, as your hypothesis, then when there's racism, when there's kind of a gendered dynamic going on, then this is just a kind of uh, a distraction from the kind of like the bigger kind of gravitational field or gravitational pull, which is say a class kink conflict or inequality. And I think there are dangers to that because then racism becomes understood as a certain thing, as which is like, well, it's coming from the top to kind of divide people. And um, whilst that's true, it's also come from below and it's come from below to constitute certain kind of pragmatic unities. I think it's a key point for us really is that when we focus on workers' movement, it's not to disparage workers' movements or the racism of workers' movements, it's to show that actually race was operational as a kind of it had utility as a kind of pragmatic unity and imperialist ascendancy there's potential there for leaders of institutions and people who had influence to develop a form of kind of racial unity around the white racial kind of work and nationalize on that basis so we can't really say that it's just a, a kind of an irrational personal individualized dynamic because lots of arguments around that isn't there where you could say well it's just human beings and it's always been that way it's one level um, actually, it's constituted uh, on the nation and the kind of identities that are then produced after the fact. You know, that there's kind of the taxpayer in contemporary discourse has become such a kind of racialized kind of idiom, you know, that some people who are taxpayers deserve to get certain things and they've been taken away from them. Well, that's produced through this historical development. You know, it's produced through the idea that there's a citizen worker and that that's a kind of racialized unity in which some workers actually desire social reproduction via the state and that's under attack from other workers and that's all part of this period so what we want to do is try and unsettle that because then yeah we get into a kind of an understanding of racial capitalism then that's actually very dynamic there's different forms of racism that kind of predate what we'd understand as kind of a capitalist regime and certainly a late kind of imperialist regime you know which is only like 150 years ago in terms of forming polities you know so all these things then kind of ask us to think about that interrelation that is between the so-called pre-modern and modern. And if that actually kind of duality even has any kind of legibility, really, that how do we think of things developing? What does, how does capital develop archaic form? You know, how does it modernize what we'd understand as these kind of archaic or kind of, um, you know, like almost prehistorical uh, kind of forms of racism or kind of, uh, of gender division and oppression? And, you know, that's kind of a big kind of emphasis for us throughout the text, because if it does, if we can get to like looking at things that way, then we're not caught in schemas. You know, we can just look at the world as it is and come to the world as it is and, think, and not think, well, you know, there's a route here to kind of nationalize around a certain issue. And, you know, that will give us a little bit of room for these other issues that seem a bit secondary, that the whole thing has to be looked at, you know, across the board. So that's really for us, it produces a sensitivity, I think. I think like reading history produces a sensitivity to like what, what's around you. Mm. And we've definitely felt that throughout the book, haven't we? You know, it's not like our minds haven't been changed through writing it. 
as well, you know, that we haven't kind of developed a certain consciousness through surveying all of these kind of historical scenes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was just kind of like nodding along there. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I think since, even since we, um, since we wrote the book, I read um, Geraldine Heng's book about the, mm, yeah. the the invention of race in, in the kind of medieval period. And, and that kind of, if anything, just kind of strengthened um, and like, and added to to a lot of the work that that Robinson does in in black mark black marxism and elsewhere in terms of like showing how these these relations these kind of things that we can only really look at and understand as forms of racial oppression as like forms of like the state enforcing um you know power through these different kind of forms of identification whether it be um, along cultural and religious lines, or or later over um, over skin color and and you know different forms that these that these are like deep in the marrow of of Europe. Like this is it's that's that that only kind of reinforced to me like how how kind of co-constitutive these things are in terms of trying to understand this this kind of thing of the origins of capitalism you know this which is something that is you know a huge um undertaking for lots of people from di- from different kind of traditions this of trying to separate out like where th- where where it begins and these kinds of things um and i think that that yeah that came up again and again like it came up in the the chapters around around feminism, the kind of stuff mm. that Hazel Carby was writing mm-hmm. um, in terms of like the, the kind of critiquing of stages, of the stages that appear in kind of Marxist historiography, but also the kind of waves approach to kind of um, to different feminist movements and and how, you know, how basically, you know, the, again, like the, the approach in the book is is not to kind of, shame historical movements or to shame ourselves through our connection to them but to to just show how how basically failures of solidarity have arisen again and again in different ways in different scenes at different times and and trying to kind of you know find ways what we call um trying to kind of compose ourselves or compose our movements um and and trying to to kind of build revolutionary power like that's that's the book is about solidarity and it's about revolution and it's about trying to trying to engage with um the you know the world as it is and and history as it as we have found it through through study um and not kind of play these kind of games that you hear some people on the white left playing of like, well, you know, you could have, you could have capitalism without race, but you can't have it without class. Mm. It's like, well, this is an absolutely pointless like exercise because we have the capitalism that we have Mm. and it came through the path that it came. And 
like that's this this is our terrain like mm. this this is where this is where struggle takes place but also that i guess that the violence um that occurs as a result of capitalism is not like fodder for hypothetical um yeah. <laughs> intellectual games i guess yeah <laughs> or yeah. like thought experiments yeah. yeah um i i wanted to also come back because uh, because as you were talking, I was thinking that especially on the left, I guess critiques of identity or the fixity of identity in this current political moment always um, seem to be undergirded by this idea that um, identities are fixed. I guess, mm. and I, I guess um, what you show so well by tracing disunity, division, if we must call it that, in workers' movements, is how actually like. Um, everybody underwent a process of racialization in some sense in order mm. to form those alliances, right? So there are there are quote unquote workers that um, are white that weren't always white. Like mm-hmm. a process of racialization happened, and also a, a, pro- a process of strategically creating um, uh, alliances against the foreign other or the alien other um, as a means of, uh, I guess, bolstering the workers' movement or, or bolstering demands that workers were some workers were making from the state um so you kind of like uh i guess you trace the way that uh, as i said certain left movements have always had this explicitly antagonistic relationship with race and you talk about john hodge the head of the um tuc in 1892 who speaks of closing um the borders to defend against the enormous immigration of destitute aliens the kind of anti-chinese sentiment um that was rife um amongst members and leaders of the working man's party in um, california how american labor movements created solidarity amongst white workers by explicitly positioning themselves against the movement or migration of former, uh, formerly enslaved people. Um, and in all of these cases, what we understand is the worker is coded in a very specific way. So I want I wanted you to speak, I guess, thinking about the chapters specifically about the border and anti-Semitism to the creation of the uh, of the white worker as formed in opposition to racialized others, um, but also something that emerges in order not only to fortify um, uh, uh, certain workers' movements, but also to fortify the border, right? Um, and how is how is the figure of that worker created through um, racial, uh, specifically different um, differentiation? I think you know in that in that chapter, you know we're we're discussing um, basically the the kind of originary um, immigration controls uh, in in modern Britain in terms of the Aliens Act in in 1905, um, and and you know I think maybe maybe taking chapters four and five together because the, there is this kind of real like exchange that's taking place between between kind of the british imperial kind of center and its kind of um you know white white settler colonies and former white settler colonies because at this point australia and you know south africa and the us uh, are all kind of experimenting with and um, and innovating like new f- new forms of immigration control um, that are basically you know they are uh, premised on the kinds of things that are um, talked talked about today um, in 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 the in the terms of like white genocide 
race suicide um these the, like that was a, a term of the of the late 19th and early 20th century so they they they're premised in the language of kind of like um eugenic health of like protecting the kind of the the health of the kind of you know of the white race or of the british race the english race and those kinds of um discourses um and ideologies were absolutely rife in um in in the british and the us kind of left and workers movements during during that period and so like you know trying to understand what the border is to today how the border functions today i think a really good place to start is to look at where it like how it came about and who who wanted it um what it was for um and and like you say you know in in our chapters we we try to show that these kinds of um you know the the, the kind of building of these kind of reactionary coalitions around whiteness around masculinity around kind of uh craft labor um and around you know the the kind of the opportunities the paths to whiteness that were that, that were opened up to others so when we look when we look at the kind of anti-semitism um that kind of became so pervasive with the 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 kind of entrance of um Jewish refugees in the late 19th century into Britain um escaping from from like pogroms in in uh, the Russian empire um you know that that was that was kind of uh prevalent across different sort of class positions and and um you know political traditions um and you know what we try to trace in the book is that like you know the really like huge ruptures are taking place uh within you know the working class and during that period you have you know what what now is referred to as new unionism so it's like the 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 kind of flooding of like unskilled workers into more organized forms of workers movement um where you know previously like unrepresented workers workers who weren't considered workers like mostly workers of irish origin or irish born um lots of uh, women workers were in the 1880s and 90s just before and and du- during this kind of like you know moral panic around around jewish migration um were beginning to take over and transform the institutions of the working class in Britain which in, which before then had been you know basically like um the you know a, a tiny kind of layer of like craft workers who basically just had a had a kind of a stitch up with the liberal party um but this you know this was a kind of transformation that was happening and part of the transformation was that it gave the opportunity for previously kind of excluded sections of the working class to then become the excluders of 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 Jewish workers. Yeah, I think that's what's really interesting about that case because you know, you often hear a lot about or a kind of aversion to the term like labor aristocracy and often 
it's in reference to say what we'd understand now as organized labor modern organized labor post-war kind of labor of the imperialist core but the term really developed um you know as a response to what mike was talking about there aristocratic craft kind of unionism like a labor unionism that had a kind of complete distance from you know a great swathe of the working class and loads of them went straight into the house of lords they yeah, really were it was a, and the complaint of the chartist movement in the 1670s was this labor aristocracy the, the, the working class was absolutely riven with divides at that point anyway because there was such kind of realms of exclusion of women workers workers from ireland that is that kind of diaspora so yeah you get a moment i think would you agree which we kind of try and present in new unionism where again you get a situation where because of the interfacing of all these people these different movements and these breakdowns of this kind of relationship Mm -hmm. to the kind of uh, labor aristocracy of the late 19th century that there's a space there as open to possibilities for solidarity isn't there and that you know what anti-semitism does is on one level break that kind of possibility but on what its advantage was to those workers who were invested in it was it was producing a kind of imperial link a link to the imperial core kind of a popular whiteness you know that wasn't there before you know that a form of popular whiteness in which parts of the working class could be included within that gamut. And, um, you know, that meant um, new seats at the table, new um, issues of collaboration, trade union involvement, pushing for laws, all became um, kind of part of that that complex, really. And that's what we tried to show, I suppose, with that, is that kind of how that, like, formalised. Mm. And I guess it creates its own... Uh, the, the creation of the white worker in that sense is its own stratification, like creates its yeah. own, you yeah. know. Yeah. As you were talking, I was also thinking about the links between um, those arguments on the left and the present day iterations of those same arguments, right? So this in- invention of the red wall or this idea that elections were lost to like wokeism is something that connects both um, left and right in some yeah. sense. Yeah. And so yeah. I, was, I was wondering um, if you could just speak briefly following on from what you've just said about that connection. But but it's also connected to another question that I wanted to ask about the many moments in this book where you connect like uh, forms of like vigilante whiteness riot, I guess, to the to the explicit protection of white womanhood from uh, miscegenation and other kind of racial phantasms. Um and I wanted to ask how historical examples like that complicate present day notions that racism stems solely from economic um, anxieties. But also, I wanted to hear your thoughts on what it tells us about um, uh, how fa- fascism uses the family or uses or utilizes womanhood to um, advance this idea of right reproduction, right? To advance this idea um, uh, that somehow our way the the way of life the nation the body politic is under attack i think like the first one you know the red war things i spotted that in the questions i mean i'm from stoke originally so i kind of we are you know proper the heart of the red war the heart of the red war you know so i'm gonna give like a real view on that one <laughs> Got an but, enemy uh, behind the lines i mean the irritating thing of it is you know with that like how that you know was formulated that there was this kind of like um almost like town consciousness you know, like whole towns had this kind of consciousness of resentment um, at Parliament, and you had those kind of like forays of people like uh, 
maybe I shouldn't name John Harris, but and other people <laughs> yeah. who kind of like, you know what I mean? Like, he just kind of like, oh, we're going to come into Stoke Pottery Centre at two o'clock, do you know what I mean? And just go to see what, what's happening, you know, with the ordinary people. It's like, why don't you go to a workplace, you know? Why don't you go to the anti-fascist movements around there? Or, mm. You know what I mean? It's like, now I'm just going to come at two o'clock where everyone's just a bit sad, like just getting the shopping in. And, uh, you know, you're going to get a kind of very limited um you know viewpoint first of all but you might even get like media view- viewpoints p- projected back as well you know so you know like well i've gone over here you know with a certain kind of expectation and what has it you know it it's exactly as it kind of i thought it would be do you know what i mean there's racist people like you know what i mean and it's kind of formalizes then an idea of resentment that there must be some kind of real issue here or real concern you can't ignore it and a vox pop's really good like that isn't it because it calcifies that it gives the appearance of it um, through something, a kind of physical statement or something. Um, but, you know, like, you know, I was, we always talked about this because growing up in, in Stoke, you know, the people of the, the lay of the land was the business owners and the top boys and all of these groups, which were all kind of racialized around kind of like football hooliganism. And that was interlinked with business and all the rest of it. And yeah, you know, like if you're looking for kind of consensus on certain issues of Brexit, a lot of people would be like, well, I'm a bit agnostic about it, but my boss keeps talking about it. Do you know what I mean? It keeps talking about it all the time. And it's like, yeah, the, the feeling seems to be that it's Brexit. And that was kind of, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And those kind of coercions exist, but you have to get into it. I mean, it's just a kind of anecdote, but certainly, you know, there's something there, which is a lot, which is completely, it's nothing to do with this idea that there's just some kind of town or city identities in the Red Wall. Um, and obviously that rested on this sense of ordinariness or kind of an idea of ordinariness and what ordinary is. And so, authenticity. And authenticity. Mm-hmm, so if you had a regional accent... And nostalgia. If yeah. you're a regional accent, you're a proper stokey, but you could just be a businessman exploiting loads of people. Like, yeah. You know, but you just can't... And a fact, if you, you can, you know, if you've got an accent, you know, you can use it in that way, you know, yeah. to create kind of communitarian kind of identities yeah. where you're like, well, yeah, I might be a businessman with loads of money, you might be struggling, but we're kind of in the same place, you know what mm. I mean? And it's that kind of thing. So... Um, I think what they rested on in that sense is projecting, in a weird way, projecting an idea of industrial kind of habitus, a kind of like, well, the old industrial world's gone. We know through like Robbie Shilliam's work on this and other people, this is a home counties kind of, um, you know, uh, project, Brexit. You know, that's where its kind of core voter base was. But in terms of like cross-class unities, you could produce them through whiteness, through kind of identifications, um, with the idea of an ordinary British worker that included business people, you know, who's had that sense, well, I work, you know, we all work, but there's a lot of people that rob in this country, you know what I mean, from other countries. And these kind of narratives at play, which have been historical to Britain, played out there in this new mediated kind of way, but they're not like really novel or new, but they do involve a, a kind of appealing, I think, um, to new kind of consumer bases, around the election so people who are kind of have who might have like worked in say some trades you know like 40 years ago or whatever or might have actually been supervisors in factories and actually got decent pensions and might be on golf courses now you know what i mean but it's an idea not an idea of that it's not an idea of a developed kind of integrated working class it's the idea of that these people have been left behind somehow mm. And, you know, the mass of the working class who have kind of got no homes that will be moving from country to country and following capital where, wherever capital goes to get work mm. are just excluded from that kind of idea mm. of deservedness. And, uh, you know, so I think, um, you know, that to answer that kind of part of the question, and I do think going to the, the idea of, like, 
reproduction and how this kind of pours into kind of a nuclear family you know that's very integrated into that because the nuclear family is um the substance of the nation in the sense that it's rooted to it mm. these are the kind of like the real families that stay in areas you know that you know that are trying to build a life but there's all this pressure of movement mm. coming from around and you see that replayed again and again in these kind of historical examples mm-hmm. yeah i think like some of what you were talking about was more similar to um the stuff we explore of the anti-chinese movement yeah where yeah. the, the composition of of that movement really is extremely kind of cross-class and kind of um emerges from some of the kind of the ideas of um of labor that come from the kind of the kind of settler colonial the idea of a laboring class that that combines this kind of the small farmer and the the kind of the artisan and it's basically a kind of an american approach to labor that tries to pretend like it's not in, that it doesn't industrialize for like most of the 19th century and then suddenly it's like oh wait actually this is this is what, what capitalism is happening in a different way <laughs> but it's a strange thing on that isn't it because you know the re- in the u.s context that makes sense that there's this entrepreneurial identity because it's around mm-hmm. land and mm-hmm. like you know free white men have land and you know entitlement to land mm-hmm. so that identity is produced but you do have it now because that and that entrepreneurial identity is more emerging all over the place now mm. and in britain that that becomes part yeah. of the fabric of like um kind of what the worker is the worker's like a solid making money you know mm-hmm. can be above the eighty thousand pound threshold do you know what i mean mm-hmm. and kind of and still have that like kind of emphasis I'm going to ask several questions now <laughs> and in one time and you can choose what to respond to. I keep thinking about this formulation from Ruthie Gilmore about the relationship between organised violence and organised abandonment and thinking about the scarcity logic that emerges from that relationship. And I think abolition is about trying to push those, or Ruthie Gilmore says, abolition is about trying to push those two things uh, apart in order to undo organised violence. Um, and in the same way, I think because of the organisation of like social life under under capitalism, it often seems impossible to think beyond certain structures, the nation state, the border. And so they, they become in, incorporated historically and in the present day into the to workers' fight against capitalism, right? So this is how we can arrive at this formulation of a left argument for closed borders. And I want you to, to, to speak to, I guess, the scarcity logic that is central to that idea, right? That the workers' movement is threatened by, quote unquote, globalists, for, foreign aliens, and it, the protection of the border becomes the protection of the worker. And then another thing that I was thinking about... Um, was Hall's formulation of like a conjunctural politics and the need to analyse convergent and divergent tendencies of any like historically constituted field of power. And I think that that's, you make a similar intervention in this book. And I was wondering how your insistence on the need for an, an analysis of like overlapping forms of crisis is related to um uh, that I, that idea of the need for a politics that you know attends to deconstruction, but also attempts to reconstruct something um, in the process of thinking through it, if that makes sense. So, in in simpler words, what's the purpose of the critique you make in this book? What what does it in- attempt to reconstruct? What's the book for? <laughs> <laughs> I think that like what we are trying to do and how other people receive it are obviously two different things. But what we are 
I think, attempting to do is to kind of use historical scenes to undermine something that we were seeing within our movements, within every single like discourse every single day, um, on the front pages of newspapers, from the mouths of um, you know government ministers. We were trying to explain what we thought was underlying the the kind of meanings of those discourses like what they what kind of work they were doing what they were for i don't know that's <laughs> yeah no i think the, the the reference to river gilmore as well is really important i mean we we briefly bring in river gilmore in the in the second chapter around fragmentation you know because what you get with river gilmore is that yeah the conditions are bad for organizing mm. they're bad for organizing because there's prisons mm. and there's because there's policing and it's because there's been this period of accelerated incarceration. That's what creates division. Mm. What we're getting is from other parts of the left is look, you know, fine, borders might be bad, but there's a technical case for them and we can improve it and make that more humane. They're not, but the division comes from- Or getting rid of them doesn't or poll, rid of poll them, well. Or doesn't mm. poll well. Yeah. And we need to create some kind of electoral identity around the left mm. that means that these things are out of bounds. But at the same time, oddly, kind of what comes through that is and stop dividing our politics but people are divided because we're criticizing you people are divided because they're going to prison they're being policed that kind of race is formulating this differentiation mechanism all the time in which the border is being used to, to facilitate capitalist accumulation that's kind of what's going on that's the materialist analysis you know that you get with someone like Rufi Gilmore and you know I think that's what we want to do really we want to kind of like build off these thinkers, like build and contribute in any small way we can to like the scenes of history that we've been really engaged with for a long time uh, that are quite particular but relate back to these arguments and kind of, you know, like give a historical materialism a division and what that is. And identity is absolutely central to it. You know, that it's, you know, identity thinking is produced by liberal democracy, it's produced by the commodity, there's no way out of. Um, it's produced by racial capitalism. There's no real way out of these histories. We have to kind of work in them. That's that's the choice we've got. So we just wanted that, really. We're building. I mean, we always talk about this as a bridging document, ultimately. You know, we're trying to, like, bridge our readings of of these thinkers, our kind of, like, um, understanding of our own experience in movements, these historical contexts, and just, like, bring those together in some way that people can look at that and go, well, actually, I'd like to just investigate these thinkers more. I'd like to, you know what I mean, if new readers to this, you know, to new readers to like Ruth Gilmore or, you know, the boys that can like find some like bridge there mm. uh, for these texts, um, that works as well for us. So, you know, that's kind of one of its purposes, I think, yeah. you know, from, from the beginning. And we wanted the book also to like attack our enemies, but then we, <laughs> we ended up I think you cutting did. all of that out. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely done that subtly, Stop. which is the best way, I think. Subtle, yeah. Start yeah. with your bugbears. Um, well, credit like... Nader Tehrani for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two kind of closing um, questions, which you can briefly answer in um, any way you wish. Um, I, I guess I want to return back to the like the history of kind of like black feminism in the UK. People like Olive Morris, people like Claudia Jones, thinking about the heart of the race, Beverly Bryan, Stella Dadzi, Suzanne Scaife. And and actually I, I found 
I think it's at the very end where you kind of quote this conversation that Suzanne Scaife and Stella Dadzi and Beverly Bryant are having about identity and, and how the heart of the race has changed, what it means um, so many years on. And Suzanne Scaife says, well, maybe we need to change our formulation from identity politics to a politics of identity. That, and I, I took from that that rather take um, rather than taking essentialisms as our starting point, um, a politics of identity enables us to kind of temporarily occupy universals in the moment of resistance. I'm really interested in that concept, mm. right? Because the universal, it seems like in this room, it's kind of like a dead thing. We don't really believe in universals. But I think that when we are in the moment of the strike or the moment of struggle, mm. there is something that you can't quite name that yeah. happens. And it is a, a kind of universal movement. And so I wanted to ask about y your thoughts on that. And then I also... Uh, wanted to ask, actually, the very last question, can you describe, I guess, the process of writing collaboratively? Because mm. um, you said this is not a question that you've been asked um, before. So what does it mean to write with, like, a comrade? Um, and, yeah, what, what, how does it enliven or reanimate your imagination um, when thinking about, you know, the myriad overlapping crises that, like, govern this um, uh, political moment? Yeah, I, I thought it was, like, I, I thought it was really interesting when Verso published the new edition of um, Heart of the Race, and there were, and, and you know, in the in the back of the book, you had this kind of in, um, interview, a conversation happening between between the three authors, and I I, I really kind of um, was keen to kind of have some of that in the conclusion because in the in, in the introduction we begin with um, basically the Kambahi River Collective and the Heart of the Race. Mm. Um, and and I wanted to end with that as a kind of um, sort of book ending. And, and because I think it, it also, it kind of gets to some of the nub of, of the book in the sense that, you know, I, I found the conversation interesting because I saw that, you know, Stella Dadzi was kind of pushing up against this kind of thing of of you know of, of seeing certain aspects of the the movement today um, or of or of a younger generation doing certain things that she felt were like not wouldn't work as well as things that that she had been part of or that were kind of and then you you had kind of Beverly Bryan kind of kind of tempering some of that stuff and 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 I and I thought that you know here is like these absolutely like titanic kind of women who wrote this incredibly important book um, that is like the kind of, that is like representative of the kind of the coining of identity politics as a, as a term, as a politics, even if they don't take ownership of that, of that phrase, but it's happening kind of at a similar time to Kambahi River Collective. And it's talking about kind of subject position and, and, and a kind of, a sense that black women were being kind of ex excluded or or obscured or or ignored by the existing movements um the fact that dadzi was using s some of those kind of phrases like i don't think that she's trying to be kind of i don't think that she's trying to be dismissive in the in the way that we're that um that we in the kinds of examples that we've discussed but that is a that's just such a common language that we all have that just like it's so easy to kind of just say like oh you know it's just like 
I think she said something like um, identity politics, like me, myself and I mm. kind of stuff. And like, that's that's kind of why I wanted to include it because the it's it's you know the language is important which we're trying to kind of if not kind of um defend this thing called identity politics like it has some kind of settled meaning mm. or that it's like this that it's actually something that needs to be like at the heart of the movement is the solution to everything um so but that that it spoke to something and it still speaks to something that is a problem at the heart of of how how we can organize how we can be in solidarity with each other how we can kind of um struggle together um so i, I just yeah that's that's i think why and, and and yeah and and suzanne scaife's kind of you know again that's kind of like what what um i was saying at the beginning about what you know the, about how language works in terms of like um stuart hall's quote at the beginning which is like yeah i mean it would be nice to have a better phrase mm. but who knows if 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 that can catch on or if mm. that's how these things work because basically what we find in in the book is that what what happens again and again and again is that um phrases and terms and organizing concepts that that emerge from black struggle um especially from african american kind of um communities and 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 kind of uh like sort of vernacular expression get kind of appropriated mm. uh wokeness identity politics um you know canceling these kinds of things they once they get appro appropriated and kind of and and move into these kind of projected into these different areas and into these onto these different scales like those kind of that kind of scale jumping that happens um it's almost dead you know it's almost like yeah you, you know i think we we quoted um uh, black novelists um in it might have been in the footnotes william mm. melvin kelly where he's basically taught you know he he is one of the first people who writes woke in the in the kind of sense that we're talking about it um in in the new york times in 1962 and he's basically saying like you know he's talking about like beatnik like white beatniks um in in new york and he's like saying like they're always just like copying our words and like as soon as you hear one of them use one of our words we know that word's dead and we just mm, have to mm. come up with a new one like. <laughs> i think also in terms of what you were saying about stella it's like walking that fine line between trying to critique the liberal co-optation of identity yeah. and but but also not giving in to the rights um disdain for identity right which yeah. is such a, a often a hard way to um, a hard thing to do especially because of how language works in um the the arena of representation yeah. that is like the public mainstream i guess um Absolutely. alex do you want to like round us off about yeah. um writing collaboratively oh yeah 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 um yeah i think uh so the way it started was we met through the occupy times that's a publication that came out of occupy i met mike and other comrades after the eviction and I think there was questions and like reflections about what this paper is going to do now because it was an organ of that movement. And so I was part of that deliberation with our comrades and 
you know, the idea, I think, the footing of the publication all the way into its kind of next permutation, which was base, was, well, I think uh, it's about engaging with the movements that exist. So that would be on housing eviction, it'd be anti-raids and, you know, these kind of affinities. Um, and we were all writing collectively at that point because the whole form of the magazine was we it's thematic. So we'll explore, say, housing, mental health or madness. And we'll kind of work around these themes and do collective editorials to just kind of write them up. So it's a pedagogical kind of form to it as well. And um, that gave us, I think, capacity to build trust. I mean, we chatted about this, mm. didn't we, Lola, before, yeah. is that I think writing collaboratively needs loads of trust, really. I mean, you know, you know, you're still okay with me, or you might, but you know, <laughs> I kind of like, I had to like be brutal, didn't I, at certain points in this text where it's like, there's a lot of words here, mate, and we're just gonna have to cut a lot of this out. Yeah. So, you know, here's a little, here's a little experiment, and you know, we'll see how it goes. We can I'm still, I'm still nursing some of those wounds now. Right? <laughs> well, you know, we can still talk in that just about. <laughs> but I think um, you had that in the group. You know, we had to learn to write together. You know, like where you're all on Google Docs, looking at a blank yeah. page, like who goes first or whatever, do you know what I mean? You had to kind of go over those hurdles and someone would just like fall in. And then you, it, it was it was a brilliant process, you know, it's like a, a beautiful process. And, you know, eventually when it turned into base, about 2016, 17, that was when obviously we get this moment with Le Pen and Trump and all the rest of it and Farage and, um, a lot of writing had developed at that point where we wanted to just take historical line. And I think Mike took the lead on that really because you were exploring so much historical work and it helped me understand the limits of theory as well on the limits of like, um, you know, being a Marxist nerd. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, some of the, it, some of it's kind of imminent critique that's in this book. It's kind of going through blocks really in your own understanding because, you know, I've got family experiences of kind of people I love who've been incarcerated and stuff, but these Marxist texts weren't answering that, but I was very f over-focused on them because maybe there's some transference effect there, but when you get into kind of black radical traditions, suddenly I get kind of understanding mm -hmm. because that's where it's written about in a rigorous way, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the partnership really was like a, a learning partnership that might kind of give me a bit of tutelage along the way you know what i mean and then we kind of like we went yeah a little bit and then <laughs> don't we know went, about that yeah, yeah. No, no no not in that but like just passing stuff over yeah, passing yeah. stuff over i like, thought you just needed does. a couch to sleep on yeah that's true <laughs> mate yeah so, uh, that was it yeah we were writing yeah you know from coming into work and staying on mike's couch as well which kind of helped didn't it you yeah. know to create some like routine but um yeah so we went from there and then and developed it from there and it was a huge project i mean you know, there's a there's loads of there's over hundred thousand words at first, mm. so there's a lot of editing to do, wow. and Nader really gave us the um, such brilliant advice, really, mm. and consulted yeah. us around, yeah. kind of made us think about what she this was would the be third, to be a book. The, the third yeah. collaborator, sort of, yeah, big time, um, yeah. So thank um, you so much. This has been an absolute joy. Um, thank you for listening, and thank you to Surviving Society for giving us a chance to have this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, thank Adders, you. and thanks, Chantal and Tiso. Yes. We love you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review, and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.